Welcome to Brain Trust Philanthropy, powered by Vitreo. We bring you free-flowing conversations with top thought leaders in philanthropy and the nonprofit sector. Sit back, relax, listen and enjoy as we share ideas and discuss topics that are important, timely, and we hope will transform the nonprofit world. Hello, and welcome to Brain Trust Philanthropy, powered by Vitreo. It was recorded Thursday, May 23rd, 2019. I'm Vincent Duckworth. I'm a fundraiser and a partner with Vitreo Group. We are a national agency focused on bold leadership and transformative fundraising. In this episode, our 7th of 2019, we were joined by Bob Carter, Chairman of Carter, Leah Eustace, President of Blue Canoe Philanthropy, Sue McCoy, Director of Major Gifts with the Stollery Children's Hospital Foundation, and Brian Bowman, Director of Alumni and Development at St. Polytechnic. This is part two of our two-part series on life and career hacks, what I would tell my 20-year-old fundraising self if I could go back in time. Join us in conversation with four great leaders as they share a bit of their life journeys and what has and hasn't worked for them along the way. It's time for the Brain Trust Philanthropy Podcast. Welcome to episode 28 of Brain Trust Philanthropy Powered by Betrayal. This is our seventh episode of 2019. Our topic today, Life and Career Hacks, Part 2. What would I tell my 20-year-old fundraising self if I could go back in time? We did part one of this series with a live podcast in Edmonton a few weeks back. We have four terrific guests with us today, all amazing leaders and fundraisers. I'm excited to be here. They're excited to be here. Let's get started. Joining us from Ottawa, we have Leah Eustace. This is Leah's second appearance on our podcast. She joined Ron Strand and Larissa Grosh for our storytelling episode, episode 15. Is the device screen our new campfire, telling our stories in the 21st century? Welcome back, Leah. Thank you. Glad to be here. Leah and I have been friends and colleagues for a number of years, and I'm very excited to hear what advice Leah has for her 20-year-old self. Leah is an amazing person with many talents and interests. And Leah, I might be wrong on this, but one of your interests appears to be travel. And by travel, I mean a lot of it and to some really interesting places. I'm wondering if you could take a minute to tell our listeners a bit more about your travel bug, why you do it, what it does for you, and where was the most interesting place you visited in the last 12 months? Oh, boy. Wow. Um, I was really fortunate as a kid in that uh, my parents really believed in travel and seeing the world. And, uh, you know, but between my mom having grown up in France and my dad um, having been part of IBM and traveling all over the place on conferences, we, we just did a lot of it. And uh, so all of us are travel bugs. My sister's just as much of a travel bug as I am. Um, I just, I love seeing the world. It helps me understand my own world. Meeting new people helps me understand myself. Um, boy, in terms of most interesting places in the last 12 months. You can pick more than one. So, oh, okay. One, one spot that I had never heard of and loved was the, uh, the town of Marfa, Texas, which uh, my sister, who is, uh, runs an art gallery, says, she said, if you're going to be in Texas, you have to go to Marfa. I had never heard of it. I looked it up, and it's just the coolest little town um, full of art galleries and art foundations and uh, in a town of 
I can't remember how many, it's like a thousand people or something. Um, I, I just love finding these little out of the way, non-touristy spots. And I, I would pick Martha, I think, as my favorite in the last year. All right. Well, I'm adding Martha, Martha, not Martha, Martha to my list. It's uh, Martha, Bob, with, Martha with a now. Oh, it is Martha. M-A-R-F-A? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I thought it was Martha. Okay. Got it. So did I. <laughs> All right. Anyone else on the call been to Marfa? <laughs> All right. No. So, very unique. Uh, thanks, Leah. Also joining us this morning from the Salary Children's Hospital in Edmonton, we have Sue McCoy. This is Sue's first appearance on our podcast. In fact, it's Sue's first appearance on any podcast. <laughs> Sue, welcome to Brain Trust Philanthropy. So happy to be here. Like Leah, Sue and I have known each other for many years. Sue, uh, before you do some time traveling and share your life lessons with us, I know you worked for a number of years with KCI. During that time, you worked on some pretty cool projects. One of those was the Museum of Human Rights in Winnipeg. I'm wondering if you can share what it was like working on such an important cultural project. Wow. I was so nervous with the question you were going to ask me. <laughs> Didn't know which, which direction you were going to go in. Um, so, uh, an amazing project. Uh, probably the, the, the coolest thing about that project is when I started, it was just a vision. And um, it wasn't a federal museum at the time. It was a family in Winnipeg that felt passionate about this. And and they drove. That's the, the, that's the Asper family, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So I worked uh, quite closely with Gail Asper, was the kind of the chair of the campaign. And um, we started really on ground zero. I was brought in. It was just myself. It was before I even had a, a colleague uh, from KCI that joined me around six months into the project. Um, and, uh, and it was fairly young when I started. I mean, it was younger, obviously, than I was today. Um, but I felt kind of a bit overwhelmed. Um, but um, amazing to be with so many visionaries and to be able to create the first federal museum outside of Ottawa, um, I think was, was, fascinating to 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 understand what that takes and and the players that need to be involved because i at the beginning that was not that was not the plan and um so uh from the working with the architects to figuring out what's going to be in this museum because that was also the uh we had many groups come to us that wanted to be involved in the museum and and what what does the canadian museum for human rights look like and what what what's Canadians what what's the history of Canada and and for me it was I learned so much uh I learned about so many different heroes that we have in Canada that I had never heard of um and kind of embarrassingly had not heard of um so that opened up my world and uh and we ended up raising over 260 million dollars for that building and um it it's amazing so um yeah, it was a fun project to work on. Well, I, thank you for sharing that with us. And, of course, it's an amazing uh, gift to the world uh, that uh, that the Asper family, particularly the Gail Asper, uh, with her vision put together. And, and it's so great that you're able to share that with us. Has anyone on the call uh, had a chance to visit uh, the Canadian Museum of Human Rights in Winnipeg? Yeah, I, I have. It's amazing. Yeah. It's a great place uh, to go, Brian. Have you had a chance to visit there yet? I have not. I'd love to go though. Yeah, it's just it, architecturally, it's mind blowing. Conceptually, it's mind blowing. It's a real gift, 
And uh, Bob, I don't know if you have you been to Winnipeg? Um, I no, I have not. I've flown around Winnipeg in circling exercises, I think, but that's it. <laughs> okay. I've been well, to a lot of places have... in Winnipeg. Well, you got to put that on your list. It's a it's a real gem. Um, so thanks, thanks uh, Sue, for sharing that. And that's a good segue into our third panelist, Bob Carter, chairman of Carter and all-round globetrotter. Um, like Leah, Bob has been on our podcast before. In fact, Bob was our guest, uh, I guess, on our second episode. The topic, and um, he still blames me for this because I put an American on our panel. Uh, this was called, the topic was philanthropy in the era of Trump. <laughs> Bob was joined. Bob was joined by uh, Sharon Batch from Edmonton and Jocelyn Daw from Calgary. It was a great show. Welcome back, Bob. Thanks. I'm glad to be here. And you know, I, I will get you one day for that. But it was uh, <laughs> the, re- the remarkable thing is you're still you're still uh, podcasting, so I feel okay about all of that. Oh, that's great. <laughs> Fun, Bob. Bob, you are likely the most, um, how do we say this, chronologically enriched guest we have on our show today. <laughs> I love that. That's so nice. Uh, we we can't wait to hear what you, you would say to the Bob Carter who's just starting out in his fundraising career. But before that, though, like Leah, you appear to be a constant traveler. In fact, I believe you are calling in from Budapest today and after having been in Geneva yesterday. Yeah. Um, maybe you can yeah. tell us a little bit about what brought you to Europe this spring. Yeah, um, well, I, I've been working internationally for quite a while. Uh, as a matter of fact, related to KCI, I was uh, part of the group that founded KCI back in the day with Ketchum uh, and was vice chair of that group for a while. It's a great, great organization. Uh, but anyhow, um, one of the new uh, appointments that I, I took on this past spring and actually started in February was I'm on an advisory committee to form a new foundation in Geneva for the World Health Organization. Oh, that um, little organization. Yeah. Yeah. It's pretty, it's an extraordinary group of people. They have a new CEO from Africa, Dr. Tedros, who, uh, who is changing many, many things. And one thing he's changing is the, um, the interest and ability of the World Health, the WHO, to uh, be involved in receiving private philanthropy and not just government funds. So wow. I'm I'm one of about a dozen people from around the world who are putting together the structure that will be uh, acceptable for global philanthropy. Uh, much of this coming at the urging of the Gates Foundation and several others who have been partners with WHO for years. Um, so anyhow, that's what got me to Geneva, but I've, I've already worked in and working in France uh, and in uh, Germany um, right now and we have a, a new project another project in Switzerland uh, in a place called Schaffenhausen Switzerland uh, as well so um, the longest travel that I do is I'm in uh, I'm in Australia about four to five times a year for World Vision Australia um, and we work with the World Vision Organization all over the world. So anyhow, that's too many words. But uh, the WHO is the reason I got to Europe fairly frequently, and I'm continuing to be over here quite a bit. What a fantastically important project. Uh, thanks for sharing that with us, Bob, and welcome back 
Certainly. And last, well, not, but, yeah, last but not least, joining us from right here in Calgary, we have Brian Bowman, Director of Alumni and Development at the Southern Alberta Institute of Technology. Like Lee and Bob, Brian is a returning guest. Brian has Bob beat, however, as Brian has the distinction of having been our guest, a guest on our very first show, recorded and aired in March 2017. Welcome back, Brian. It's been too long. Oh, it's great to be back, and uh, thanks for having me. Brian and I have been friends and colleagues for as long as I have lived in Calgary. Uh, we have worked together on projects at the Southern Alberta Institute of Technology for CASE, which is the Council for the Advancement of Sport of Education, and for AFP. Brian, I can't wait to hear what you would share with your younger self. Right now, though, I'm wondering if you can share with our listeners a bit more about CASE. You have served as chair of the district board. You've chaired a regional CASE conference. What is CASE about, and what are their plans for their members in the coming year? Well, thanks, Vincent. Um, yeah, absolutely. CASE and the Council for Advancement and Support of Education under uh, the new president, Sue Cunningham, is actually going through a fairly radical transformation as a global leader in um, support and advancement of, of education. And that comes along with it, a major governance restructuring. So uh, I've been part of the District 8 um, leadership, which involves the Pacific Northwest, uh, the Prairie Provinces, as well as Alaska. So a fairly large regional geographic area, but uh, CASE really aspires to be a global leader and has representation throughout the world. And part of their agenda has been to really begin to leverage uh, the expertise that they have um, around the table on a global level. And so in so doing have um, undertaken a, a restructuring of their, their governance model. So rather than um, having individual organizing bodies across um, multiple geographic areas, they're going to amalgamate. And Sue's led a, a very intensive initiative to start to uh, to, to um, move that in that direction in order to better serve the, the global needs. So, you know, Australia, um, the UK, uh, the, the Philippines, Mexico, um, Pacific, or, or, uh, the, 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 um, Asia. There's a, a huge demand for uh, services in the advancement realm and uh, looking to CASE is really a leader in that space. And so that's um, been the big driver over the last little while. Um, what I value about my involvement with CASE is, is the ability to connect with others in the advancement space. And uh, I have the opportunity to sit with colleagues from the University of Washington, um, from Portland State, um, and other you know, significant uh, post-secondary institutions, all of whom are struggling and dealing with some of the same challenges in the realm of advancement, philanthropy, um, alumni relations, uh, communications, and things of that sort. So it's a great um, opportunity to to see what's going on in the broader advancement realm and to share challenges and, and experiences and um, solutions to uh, what we're all going through in the realm. And uh, CASE is sort of at the, the nexus of all of those things and uh, leading change across a, a global spectrum. Thanks, Brian. I, uh, Sue came to a case from, from Australia, didn't she? She did, yes. Yeah, I think she was working for one of the universities there. Uh, I, I had a chance to meet with her at the last case conference. She's, 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 uh, she's got a great vision for the organization. I don't know if you know, Brian, but, uh, but Bob, uh, Bob Carter on our call today, he was actually on the case board back in uh, the John Lippincott days. Mm the case national board so he has yep. some a little bit of experience with that um, great, so thank great organization yeah yeah 
Thanks, thanks, Brian, for, for, for sharing that with us and joining us. Uh, thank you all again for joining us on this, our 28th podcast. Uh, today's topic, Life and Career Hacks, Part 2, What Would I Tell My 20-Year-Old Fundraising Self If I Could Go Back in Time? This topic has been a winner from the get-go, and, and we proved it a few weeks ago in Edmonton at our second annual live podcast. Joining us then were, were Tony Myers, Mike House, also from the Stoller Children's Hospital, uh, Jane Potenche from the University of Alberta, and Jen Pantelek, uh, uh, the CEO of Junior Achievement of Northern Alberta. Uh, as I mentioned two weeks ago in part one, I've always enjoyed listening to life lessons. It's how, it's how I learn. We're all going to learn something in the next uh, uh, 40 minutes or so. So let's get this conversation started. And I can think of no one better suited to kick this off other than Bob Carter. Bob, can you start us off? If you could go back in time, what would you tell your 20-year-old fundraising self? Well, you know, Vincent, that's really, uh, is it because I'm the farthest away today? Um, yeah. One of the oldest, uh, one of the other. Uh, uh, chronologically enriched is our preferred term. Yeah, yeah. I love the term. I'll use it tonight. Um, you know, I, I, I go back to, uh, to that point in time. And, you know, one thing that struck me when I was thinking about this topic is I probably wouldn't listen to myself if I told myself, <laughs> so. um, because uh, I pretty much thought I knew a lot and knew a lot of, uh, you know, where I was headed and what I would do. Um, but there's some things that just have to be learned and have to be experienced. For them to, to have the learning impact that I think uh, uh, that I think they should have and would have, but but looking back, there are things that I, I wish that I had uh, pre-life experience in, or someone had clued me in on, I guess. And a lot of that had to do with um, with listening and developing really good listening and therefore learning skills uh, as early on as possible. Um, the great fortune that I had back then was I had great mentors who did, who did let me make mistakes. Um, I think one of the life lessons is learning that mistake, a mistake is not a terminal act or event. Uh, I, I tell young people that all the time today. Um, when you reach a certain point in your career, people say, how can I have a career like yours? And after I make my flip comment about careful what you wish, I do really uh, try to tell them something. And that would be to make sure that you have another language. Um, and I, I was fortunate in that I developed French early on, and that has carried me through the international work that I've done. But also, to, um, I would advise any 20-year-old or 25-year-old even uh, to – Get your information from at least one foreign source every day, in addition to those that are in your own country. Um, and that means for maybe Canada and the U.S., it's the BBC, or maybe it's Al Jazeera, maybe it's, uh, you know, another one of the, the strong media uh, platforms out there. But don't just listen to the, all the noise that's surrounding you at home or in those areas. Get other views of the world. And develop a global, a global, more global view. And that's part of the listening process. Um, the other thing I would say is, um, develop, try to develop early on principles. And this is something my father taught me. Principles are more important than opinions. And 
Um, that was kind of a life thing that I'll be honest with you. I didn't know what he was talking about at 15. Um, but then at some point later in life, I realized that there was so much wisdom in that, uh, and develop that helped me develop acceptance and other things. So I think, uh, it's, it's so hard to predict what the future will bring. I've been in this industry for 53 years now. Uh, my last legitimate work was teaching British and American literature. Um, but <laughs> the, the fact is that you really have to, you have to accept uh, the marketplace, work in the marketplace where it is, and uh, develop a real understanding of human behavior and how that how that plays out. So there, you know, frankly, there are just a couple of the things that I would give any 20-year-old, including Bob Carter. I would give Bob Carter some real serious lessons in that. I got some along the way, but boy. Uh, I, I also learned by making my own mistakes, which I think was one of the best learning tools that you can have, and that is not being afraid to make mistakes. Mm. That's awesome. Uh, Bob, uh, I, I, I was a little bit worried about, in my mind, about asking you to go first, because then I thought, oh, well, then we're stuck. Um, but I know that's not true. Who wants to go no. next? Who wants to, who wants to add yeah. in on this? Um, I'll jump in, because I... Because Bob made a great point uh, when he started off to say that his younger self probably wouldn't have listened to him. And that certainly resonated with me. Uh, when I was thinking about myself in my 20s, I was I was really a late bloomer. Um, I was not a very emotionally intelligent 20-year-old. Uh, incredibly self-absorbed. Uh, it was just the world revolved around me and uh it wasn't until i was in my 30s i think i started to look at life a little differently the interesting thing is i'm seeing this self preoccupation in my 10-year-old daughter and i can tell you it's not fun it's it's not it's not pleasant to be around and it just I, it makes me think wow i must have been just a, a nightmare to have worked with or to have lived with back then but um so on that note, I probably wouldn't have listened to myself. I also don't think that I deserved any wisdom back then because, uh, again, as Bob mentioned, I think it's important to, to fall down and I fell down many times and it was, it was by, by having those mistakes that I really was able to, to learn resiliency and, and, and that character that I've been able to build, I think has served me quite well and has led to some of the success I've I have had is is by falling down and and I'm and I'm continually falling. I'm still falling to this day, and and that's okay. It's okay to have those mistakes. Um, so aside from me not listening back to when I was you know 20, I wouldn't have listened to myself. But I still would have. I still have advice. Um, and there's a couple of things I'm thinking of. Uh, definitely listening more was one of the things I was thinking of as well. Um, patience is a big thing. Uh, I've struggled with having patience over the years and, you know, we've heard the whole idea is that it's not a, mar it's a marathon, not a sprint. Um, I so badly wanted to achieve everything in my twenties and climb the ladder and, and, and do it all. And, you know, it, it, I think I missed out on a lot of opportunities because my head was down. I was focused and I didn't necessarily look around around me and to see that there maybe were some other ways and, and, and to take time, to take time to, to work through this. Um, the, the other thing, uh, and I'll, 
uh, I won't go on after this, but um, the idea of, I felt like I apologized a lot for who I was because I felt like mm-hmm. I needed to be the person that uh, I was supposed to be. And it hasn't been until, you know, the last 10 years that I've realized, you know what, I, I actually am really good the way that I am. And if it doesn't work for the situation or if someone doesn't like it, then, then so be it. Um, so that authenticity piece for me to dive into that and to truly be who I am, uh, has been amazing. And I think had I done that 20 years ago, it would have made a big difference. Um, and, yeah, I just I apologized a lot, and now I don't apologize, and I'm much happier, and I think people are happier <laughs> around me. So that's awesome. I had to laugh, uh, Sue, when you said, uh, you know, well, I was uh, I had no EQ and I was self-absorbed and was uh, uh, self-preoccupied. Well, that 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 no, it was with all due respect and no no intended offense to twenty year olds. That describes almost every twenty year old we all were or uh, the ones that are out there. So. I wouldn't feel too badly about that. That was great, Sue. Who wants to uh, to tag on to what Sue had to say or Bob had to say or, or, or weigh in with some other stuff? Who wants to go no, next? I'd love to jump in. Jump uh, in, Leah. The, jump in, sole, Leah. For, for the sole reason that I was not a self-absorbed child. Oh, um, I can't wait to hear this. Wait a second. I'm pull my chair up closer. Yeah, well, you know, and it's, it's sort of complicated, but I... Um, at the age of 20 was, had no confidence. Um, I, everything I did was to please other people, uh. not myself. Um, you know, I dreamed of being an architect, but essentially went into philanthropy and fundraising because that's what my parents had done. Um, and, Boy, I mean, there's just so much. I just, no self-confidence, just completely every, every decision I made based, based on, um, what I thought other people would like me to do. Um, putting up with, you know, sexual and verbal harassment, which my older self would absolutely not put up with. Um, but it never occurring to me that there was something I could do about it. Um, you know, the number, the number one thing I would have encouraged my younger self to do, and I, I sort of think my 20 year old self would listen to me, um, would be seek out a good therapist. Don't wait till you're 50. <laughs> because, you know, as a 20 year old, I had a whole lot of stuff sitting on my shoulders and it took me another 30 years to actually deal with it. So, um, my life would have been very different if I dealt with it way back then. That's awesome. I, I, I'm just thinking about the the, uh, the titles for this episode, which I oftentimes get from the episode. And, uh, you know, principles are more important than opinions. And now mm-hmm. find a therapist early. Um, yeah. So those two together. <laughs> definitely. Yeah, and I think just to, to lighten the mood a bit, you know, the other piece of advice um when I was first a baby fundraiser, which I guess I would have been 23 or 24 um, when I actually started raising money uh, because I started out with a, as a uh, program officer with Grant Making Foundation. But um, I would spend hours walking around town and finding prospects in the weirdest places like 
you know, one of my pieces of advice, of advice to myself at that age would be, you know, making a prospect list, a list based on who owns a box at the Ottawa Senators Arena is a really waste. It's a big waste of time. (laughs) (laughs) So so don't do that? No, no. So are reading, you know, other people's donor walls instead of actually looking at my own donor tape base. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, fundraisers sometimes do suffer from the grass is greener. Yeah, very interesting. Uh, that was a good way to lighten the mood. Brian, I want to make sure you have an opportunity to mm-hmm. say a few words, and then I want to open it up for um, a tangents that people might, might want to pursue. So, uh, Brian, what's your thoughts? Well, I, it's such a great topic, and, and you know, it just spurs on so many things to to gain the insight of others in the profession and whatnot over the years. But it's interesting because I think as our younger selves, if we knew many of the things that we know, you know, after years of experience and and wisdom and hopefully self-development, we wouldn't have undertaken half of what we did just because of our own naivety. And, you know, as part of that process, I think of, you know, being bold and opinionated and whatnot as our younger selves that, you know, we sort of arrive at where we are. And of course, you know, the benefit of being more senior in our years and and in our careers is the, the perspective that it gives us on um, you know, what does it take to get to where you are and nobody's perfect and there's no straight line and, and, and mistakes are made and we have to forgive ourselves for those. But the big thing is, you know, the development of character and those, you know, the, the ability to know yourself um, and to have that sense of self-awareness as you're going through things as to, you know, what do I stand for? What matters to me? Um, what am I good at? What do I care about? And so on. All of that sort of comes into play as you get older. And you can't expect those things, I don't think, immediately when you're 20. Um, so the benefit of aging is just sort of that ability to look back at the landscape and to sort of see yourself inside of that and, of course, have a perspective that you can actually make a comment on, you know, what would I, uh, what advice would I give to my, my 20, 20 year old self? That's, uh, that's, go ahead, Bob, you were going to say something. I was going to say, Brian, I, you know, you made me think about something that I've, I've felt for a number of years and it's kind of hard to articulate, but, uh, only through the kind of trial and error and world or life experience have I and others certainly developed uh, some other sense of things, and that is, it's not just two-dimensional or three-dimensional, but you see behind the problem or the issue. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's and it only comes, I think, from. I mean, nobody can t- could have told me that that that's what I needed to develop or would develop. But your your life wisdom comment uh, made me think about that because I'm. I'm much more comfortable now and, in fact, enjoy complicated issues mm-hmm. um, because they seem to come easier uh, after those kinds of experiences. But thanks for thanks for prompting that thought. That's that's a great thought. Thanks. I'm uh, I'm reminded listening to all of you speak. Uh, there's I mean, there's obviously lots of crossover, but also some really unique uh, statements. But this idea that we I think sometimes. I, I'm guilty of this, of, of forgetting what it's like to be 20 and that the, what it's like to maybe not have um, all that wisdom and, and maybe have some confidence challenges and, and trying to be a people pleaser. I think that's something that gets lost sometimes when we're 
when we're thinking or working with 20-year-olds. I'm curious to see uh, or hear more about that from the group around the, the whole lack of confidence or people-pleasing piece. Oh, boy. Uh, what, it, what You know, 20-year-olds are... You know, Bob has made the comment, you know, he wouldn't have listened to himself. And I think in some respects that that's very, you know, poignant in terms of being 20 and wanting to experience things and see the world through your own eyes as opposed to, you know, through the eyes of someone with greater wisdom and experience. But um, the the idea that a 20-year-old who is interested in inquiring about things, I mean, I love being the age I am and with the experience I am because I actually bring to the table some um I hope wisdom and that people start seeking you out for your own insights into it and you know where those curiosities live in in 20 year olds and I have the opportunity to mentor a coach or whatever I mean I, I start to see myself moving into that stage of, of my career where I actually am passing along some of the things I've learned over years and, and I'm enjoying that mm-hmm. well let's turn it around um, uh, go ahead Bob Bob you were going to weigh in I, I, you know, thank you. I, you know, I had an incident when I was very young in the business that is a little bit like this topic, and and I'll I'll just quickly relate it. I was a, an associate director of annual giving at John Hopkins, and they put, of course, you don't get the top of the line job as the associate with his below assistant or whatever it was. I was as far down as I could get in annual giving, entry level, and. uh I was in charge of phonathons. They were starting phonathons. And I thought it was so depressing because the phonathons focused on calling people who never gave. That's who they ah. called. And <laughs> my job was, to, my job was to recruit people who were good people to come in and beat on bad people to try to give. <laughs> and it was, it was just this thing. I hated them. I just hated them. I didn't want to go to work on Phonathon night. It was terrible. <laughs> my boss, my boss went to Europe. The director of annual giving went to Europe, and I was sitting at my desk saying, "What if we called all the good people and got them to give fifty percent more?" And uh, I bypassed my boss and I called the chairman of annual giving and I said, "You know, what do you think about this?" Which took a little hutzpah because I was doing an end run and this person liked it. And that person said, let's try it with two classes. And so while my boss was away, we tried it and we raised more money than we'd ever raised or thought of raising in any phonathons ever by asking for increased giving. The increase was more than the combination of all the annual giving calling deadbeats every year. So anyhow, my boss came back and he was he was livid because it wasn't his idea, principally, and uh, he kind of yelled at me. But then the chair came in and said he wanted to change all of the phonathons the next year to the way that we did that on test pilot. So, you know, actually, nobody, I don't know why I did that when I look back on it other than I was so depressed with the way the things were going. Um, but I had, you know, I would tell young people, you know, any 20 year old, you know, you have to, you have to follow your instincts too, because I didn't have enough experience, but I knew what my gut was telling me about human behavior, about how bad everybody felt at those nights. 
we had to give them a lot of beer to come in and make the calls. They were terrible. Just um, just to dull anyhow, to, to to dull the depressed senses. Yeah. <laughs> That's called resilience <laughs> training. Twenty year old, you have a good idea. Go out and try it. Having- yeah, well, that's that's a great segue into one of the things I was writing down on my on my on my pad of paper here was uh, what what are, what's the groups what are the things that the group just loves about working with twenty year olds and that you you hit the the nail on the head with that one, Bob, for me. That's fun. And that uh, that they 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 uh, they don't they don't know enough to fall into line sometimes. Right. Uh, and uh, that that really can be quite helpful. So I'm curious yeah. to hear from uh, from 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 the group, and maybe Sue or Leah, you might have some thoughts on this. Yeah, so, I, no, I would I would jump in and just say really briefly, it, I I love being around the energy of 20 year olds. I don't have that anymore, um, and <laughs> and I I just you just love, climbed a mountain in Colorado. Come on. Well, uh, uh, yeah, not like when I was 20. I was huffing and puffing, but I you know I. I, I feel 20-year-olds these days just have, they're full of passion and full of ideas. Um, and sometimes we don't listen to their ideas. We sort of dismiss them. But uh, they're thinking outside the box and they're living completely different lives than we did at age 20. So uh, we can learn as much from them as they can learn from us, that's for sure. I was going to say uh, as well, I'm, um, I love... I love being a mentor, uh, and not only for what I value the the value that I feel I can I can share with with the younger people, and, I, and I've mentored older people as well. But um, I find the uh, people in their twenties that that I'm working with, I I get way more value I feel in mentoring them. Uh, for what I learned, to Leah's point, I learned so much from them. What I what I admire and what I see in this younger generation is is a sense of fearlessness, uh, where they they're passionate, as Leah said, and they just they move forward. And that to me, I I admire because I don't know that I had that when I was in my twenties. Um, and just this desire to to push forward. Um, regardless of whether it's part of the norm or not um it's exciting it's exciting to be around and and as i'm getting older and and the longer i'm in this profession that i'm realizing um the younger people are getting around me um and so that's an interesting just as i'm getting older people are seem to be getting younger or i don't know what it is um and then also my ability to stay up on technology is getting less and less so i i used to be that person that would i People would come to me for any kind of computer issue. I, I don't know when that changed, but it, it has changed, and now I'm going to them. So um, that's been that's been an interesting evolution. Um, I have to share because this is it. I'm staring at it right now. It's a quote that I have on my desk, um, and it, it speaks to what I think is a great quote. And and every whether you're young or old, um, it's a quote from Winnie the Pooh, Christopher Robin. Um, it's always remember you're braver than you believe, stronger than you seem, and smarter than you think. 
uh, and then down, that's part of the book. And then down below, I've got another just added to the quote and it says, and twice as beautiful as you ever imagined. Um, and that was one of the things I wrote down when I was thinking about what would I tell my younger self? And I think just in a superficial way, I would tell myself, you are way better looking than you think uh because not uh you know you look back at pictures now and you're like oh, what was i thinking um so yeah i think we all look better but maybe not <laughs> i'm going to use that yeah it's a great one you're you were way you're way more beautiful than you think that's great um so it, it I do find their the energy of the next generation to be super um invigorating and I I agree with you Sue the um I I really get a lot out of mentoring and not because I'm downloading knowledge but because oftentimes I'm being sparked and challenged uh by the thinking level that goes on with this generation who just seem to be brought up going yep your opinion matters a lot go ahead and share it and they do mm-hmm. and uh but there's still, um, I was at an event the other day, uh, and it was for, uh, uh, an organization that is seeing their membership dwindle. Uh, 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 it's, it's a luncheon club and, uh, and, and a lot of the folks in the room are, are, um, chronologically enriched. And, um, and, uh, and they were wondering about how to get some of the next generation in. And I said, well, you know, wh- why don't you go and ask some of the next generation? And um, <laughs> they were kind of surprised by that, that feedback. <laughs> don't ask, don't ask me. Uh, why don't you get them involved? I'm sure they have some ideas, and they they have their own needs and wants when it comes to those types of things, and they can probably uh, figure that out. So, um, other observations or uh, uh, thoughts related to this topic, bring them on. Well, Vincent, you made a good point about just the engagement with people who are not like ourselves. And if we're trying to solve problems for any organization and working in post-secondary and the changing nature of the student, the student demographic and the needs of students, um, you know, being solved by, you know, I'm going to use perhaps some offensive terms here, but, you know, aging white guys sitting around a table trying to determine what the future of education is, that you know, that opportunity to open up the walls and, and include those people in the conversation is is part of, I think, how we have to move forward. That, you know, we don't have all the answers, and in order to find um, the path forward and what we want to do is to, you know, consult with them because their perspectives are so unique and different from our own, and uh, we don't have all the answers. Mm-hmm. <laughs> It's it, it's it's okay it's okay to have some dead air, but if you have something to say, get it in. Is there something related to that? Because um, it showed up on a podcast we had a little while ago on diversity and inclusion, where that term uh, uh, it's not it's not the best term, but I fit the category, so I guess I can say it is a uh, uh, maybe not all of it. Uh, male, pale, and stale. Um, <laughs> You know, uh, uh, to break to break through that, it's a big problem in a lot of our organizations is that uh, we, we, we're not engaging this next generation. So uh, I hope that we, we can begin to do that. Um, well, so go ahead, Bob. Yeah, I was going to say, you know, having being fully qualified, you know, in all but one category, I don't think it's stale yet. No, I'm not stale. Uh, you were not stale yet, Bob. Yeah. Yeah, the, exactly. the, the first think, the first criteria of being stale is the inability to recognize that you are. But let's carry on. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, don't have your don't have your friends tell you you are. You should do self recognition. 
But I think, you know, like like all of those kinds of things, and you know, this started by by your saying, invite those that we're trying to solve problems for to be part of the solution. And I think an understanding of that, certainly, whether it's a 20-year-old or whether it's a, a you know, a 50-year-old, you, you really can't uh, walk in those shoes uh, unless you are, in fact, of of that era, of that age group, et cetera. So if you actually want views and opinions of any group, the only the only rational way to do that is to engage them. Um, and I think, you know, your counsel to that group was wise. I think that, you know, if you look at any of the leadership board studies that come out about uh, the, um, uh, you know, the, the male white thing and, and all that jazz, there's still great problems in those areas. Um, but like all the other categories, you know, I kind of hate to hear the term because it's just everybody isn't like that. It's like everybody no, else. That's when we do categories, we fail, in my view. So I just don't like to fail that way with any category. All 20-year-olds are not uh, naive. And, uh, right. You know, there are lots and lots of exceptions to all these things, so I'll just put that out there. And not all 70-year-olds are stale. <laughs> yep. Yep. <laughs> I'll just put or that they out wouldn't there. be, uh, yeah, or they would, you know, you can't be, I don't think you could be successful in sale in the industry that we work in. It's an ever changing and rapidly changing industry. And I think you either, uh, you either change or die. And, yeah. uh, you know, you get what you deserve. Well, I, I want to throw a provocative, maybe not so provocative, but I, it, a kind of a tangential uh, thought out there. And it's related a little bit to, um, to, to encouraging more diversity on our governance boards. A lot of folks in our profession tend to not only be uh, working professionals as fundraisers, uh, but also volunteer um, in, their, in their communities, uh, uh, on, on various governance boards, et cetera, et cetera. And I, I have yet to see a significant shift uh, towards the younger demographic on boards. I've seen some folks talk, but I've seen some isolated cases. I'm just wondering, what can we do to get more young people on boards, or should we? Or should we? I actually I think, think we yeah. should. Um, sorry, Leah. Um, no, you. I cut you off last time. You get to cut me off this time. That yeah, is so. It's how, uh, it, it's how it works. You guys are self-facilitating. I'm now leaving the call. <laughs> um, I was going to use uh, an example of. I'm sitting on the our community league board. Uh, and have been for the last 10 years, and I'm now president of the board. And I've seen, um, I, when I joined the board, I certainly was the youngest. Um, and the odd thing is, I think I'm still the youngest 10 years later. And um, what happens is, I don't, the board is not uh, effective in providing services for our community when we don't know what uh, new parents want with, you know, with toddlers. My kids aren't toddlers anymore, and so my needs are in the community are different than, let's say, younger people and, and or families without kids that are just new to the community. Um, so I, I absolutely think we need uh, a good representation, whether it's old, young, uh, whether it's race, whether it's culture, uh, a variety of, of different forms of diversity I think are important. Um, 
and but definitely the younger population i don't know it's we struggle because we're trying to figure out how do we reach out to them um you know it's interesting because i joined a board when i was very young and the reason why i did it was to build my resume um and i did a lot when i was younger to build my resume uh, and i don't know if that's happening to the same extent and and it may be i i i'd be curious to know what others think about um about how do we get younger people involved in volunteering and engaged in in different ways i don't know this yeah, is a, go ahead bob i was going to say this so this is a problem in a lot of different areas i mean uh, the lead story in my newsletter this morning was uh the global newsletters that uh young people aren't voting around the world and you know they want changes but they don't vote so uh and it focuses a uh, part of the article that was put out by the uh um the world economic forum has to do with germany where uh you know only they said only 28% of the 18 to 24 year olds vote and over 54 years of age 51 to 52% vote. Um, so, you know, where is the, where is the problem? Is it because they're not encouraged to vote or they, they want to make change in other ways? Um, it's a little bit off of the governance thing, but I think there's a, there's a behavior thing here, uh, that, that maybe have to do with, we mentioned confidence, we mentioned some other things and, uh, all that. So I don't know exactly what the solution is, but there are some behaviors in other areas that are very similar to the problem we have in governance areas. Um, and I think when we look at the requirements of, of governing bodies and governing boards and the new complications of that, then a lot of people, uh, a lot of young people are not terribly interested in that. I've had that discussion with some people who are younger and uh, getting their selves to be confident enough to take on responsibility for that is a whole, it's going to require a whole uh, intentionality that I don't think exists right now. I don't think it exists either. And I also observe that governance is one of the single largest issues in our sector. Yep. Go ahead, Leo. We're stuck in a lot of traditional models of how we organize people and how we organize our organizations. And, um, you know, young people these days are, are disrupting that. And if we're not open to that kind of disruption or questioning or, you know, finding of places where they can um, make an impact, well, you know, it, it, we're just, I don't know. I feel like, you know, the, the traditional kinds of ways of governing ourselves are just out of date in a lot of ways. Yeah. And I do think we need some of these, the next generation to help us reframe what the new, the new governance structures might look like. Uh, I, and maybe if, if they're reframing them, they might want to participate in them. They should. And, you know, Vincent, the, uh, you know, the, the business, the corporate model that was developed, that's used in most and many, many parts of the world, including the U.S., some in Canada as well, was developed in the 1800s as a vertical model for governing people, for managing right. people. 
Right. And you know, governing bodies have taken on that same vertical model, whereas, for example, my company is a horizontal company. There are more and more horizontal companies. We have yeah. non-competition among the various consultants in the firm. They pick their own titles when they join our company. We don't title them. Um, and that model that was created for the Industrial Revolution in the Western world should should be taken out and beaten down flat, in my view, and that includes governance. Yeah. Um, because it's, just, it's a different – we need a different model there, much more horizontal, in my view. Well, I knew that we were going to end up on a big idea. Uh, so, so I'm glad that we got there. There was lots of great stuff to talk about today, but I'm also mindful of time. Um, and I, and I want to give everybody a chance to, to, to share with our listeners, uh, uh, some of their, their, their own, um, thoughts, what's going on in their lives and, and what they want people to remember about this. So I want to thank all of you for taking the time to have this conversation. We never have enough time. I guess we should do a, a marathon podcast. I'm not sure who would listen, but, um, it'd be fun for us. Um, uh, uh, but I, I do want to, to thank all of you for joining us. But before we go, I, I want to give each of you an opportunity to, to, to share with the, the listeners. Um, uh, you know, you can tell us something that's going on, an event, uh, an activity. Just remember, this is coming out in July. So events in June require time travel to attend um, if you talk about them now. So I'll turn it first to you, Brian. Uh, what do you want the listeners to, to take away from today? Or what do you want them to hear about what's going on in your life? Um, it's it's uh, you have the floor. Oh, thanks. Well, you know, there was one piece of of my reflection on on my life and what I would do differently. Um and very briefly, I don't want to get into too much detail, but um the the I was a 10 o'clocker in elementary school and that was an experiment to see if starting late had some kind of benefit to uh, education. Well, you know what? I continue to be a 10 o'clocker. Um, and I mean, I'm using that word as a metaphor, but the uh, advice I have that I wouldn't mind sharing with uh, the audience is that uh, you should invest in good sheets and ensure that you get a good night's sleep um, because a lot of the work that we do tends to happen in the early hours of the morning. And if you lose an hour in your morning, you're going to spend the whole day looking for it. And uh, so my lesson over the course of my life, and I continue to struggle, but I'm making some progress, I'm happy to say, is uh, use those morning hours and make sure that you're rested and get a good night's sleep. That is great advice, even on the good sheets. Thanks. Absolutely. Brian. All right, Sue, you're up. So uh, thinking about, along with the theme of the younger self um, and then moving it into what I do during my day job, uh, working at the Stollery Children's Hospital Foundation, uh, we do a lot around youth and philanthropy and certainly raising three young children. For me, instilling philanthropy in my kids and in the younger generation is so important. Uh, when we're out asking for money, we're always wanting to tap into uh, not just the, the older generation, but I, I do think we need to pass on the baton. And, and so when we see kids raising money for kids, it's super exciting. And so we do a lot here at the foundation. And so I do want to put a plug in. Um, August 25th, it's Sunday, we uh, have a, it's called the Simply Supper Lemonade Day. Lemonade Stand Day. Uh, last year, we had 250 lemonade stands in Edmonton and surrounding areas. Uh, kids out 
selling lemonade for one day, uh, raising money for the Stollery, we uh, ended up raising $250,000 uh, in one day of selling lemonade. And so I just want to encourage anybody with children, um, anybody out there at all, uh, whether you want to do it on that day or you want to do it another day, but the bigger theme of of just talking to our kids about giving back, I think is so important and it's going to make a huge difference uh, in the future. So that's my little plug. That's a great plug. Thanks for reminding us about passing the baton uh, on philanthropy. Thanks, mm-hmm. Sue. Um, uh, Bob, I'm wondering if you wouldn't, wouldn't mind going next. What do you want yep. to leave the audience with? No, I, uh, geez, there's so much good stuff here. Um, I think, you know, I would, I would leave the audience with remembering that basically human behavior and human fears drive pretty much everything and addressing your own fears and understanding that others have those fears is really important as you develop your relationships and as well as you develop your professional life. Um, I would secondly tell young people that things will accelerate and change dramatically more than you can even imagine today. Uh, and so you must remain nimble and flexible, and you also have to look at your organizations in a horizontal fashion and not an upward-climbing fashion, but much more horizontal to meet the uh, needs of the future as, uh, as we integrate much better teams than we've ever had. So, you know, preach preach it, Bob. So 53 yeah. years ago when you started uh, work in this profession, uh, they didn't hand you a cell phone? Oh, my gosh. You know, I, I have too many stories about pneumatic tube robo-typewriters that produce 80,000 letters one at a time, so I won't even go there. Well, we're going to do a, we're gonna do a little sub-channel of this podcast called uh, The Early Days of Fundraising. So oh we'll gosh. come back to that another time. Thanks for that, Bob. Thanks. Leah, Thanks. you get to close us out. Oh, yeah, it's always hard after all those good comments. I knew you were um, up for it. That's why I left it for you. Yeah. So I think I think I I can wrap up a bit of advice and a bit of what I do all in one message, but um stories are everything. I now spend most of my time writing um and storytelling in, in philanthropy and ironically that is something I grew up doing. I grew up writing stories. I wanted to, to you know, write novels, and then, um, and then I put it aside for many, many years. So I've kind of come back to something I loved to do as a young person, and you know, so it was around the age of twenty that I I put it aside to focus on career and so on. And ironically, look at all we've learned about the power of emotion and the power of stories in fundraising. Um, way back when, we didn't know that so much 30 years ago. Uh, you know, the, the brain studies and um, research hadn't all been done. So, um, yeah, I mean, stories and emotion are everything. And be passionate about what you do. Thank you, Leah. appreciate that. That's a great way to close. Folks, again, thank you so much. It was an amazing podcast. With that, our gift of another Brain Trust philanthropy, powered by Betrayo, has been committed. Well, that's about it for this episode of Brain Trust Philanthropy. I hope you will join us next month when we will be visiting with Tanya Little, Bernard Ross, and Andrea McManus. Our topic will be sacred cows. What do we take for granted in fundraising 
and should we. Until then, take care of yourselves, and we look forward to talking with you soon. Brain Trust Philanthropy is powered by Vitreo and is produced by Lauren McMurray at Alchemy Communications and by me, Vincent Duckworth. Brain Trust Philanthropy is recorded in beautiful downtown Calgary, Alberta. Follow our show and engage with fellow listeners on Twitter at Powered by Vitreo. You can subscribe to Brain Trust Philanthropy on iTunes or by visiting our website at vitreogroup.ca. Wishing all of you success in your mission, peace in your lives, hope in your hearts. I'm Vincent Duckworth.